Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's cheerful New Statesman podcast, we discuss... Whether the Conservatives will actually be able to enact their manifesto. What happened to the Liberal Democrats. And why was Labour defeated so catastrophically. So here we are. How much sleep have we had between us, do you think? So I, um... I got three hours. Oh, so we've had six. We've had, okay. a, we've had a perfect six. So yeah, I Great. got in... Um, I got in from, you know, doing the live blog and, and being on ITV at about six o'clock. Yeah, and then I woke up sort of su- surpri- feeling surprisingly fresh, all things considered. Well, I don't know about you. I have this weird thing when you kind of cover electoral disasters. And essentially, let's face it, when have we not covered electoral disasters? <laughs> yeah. You have this weird thing where you cover it. You're like, oh, this is obviously not great. You then wake up and afterwards you're like, you, it, it weirdly, like a really strange thing sets you off. So I was just, oh, you know, I feel fine. And then I woke up. I saw Tom Brake oh, had yeah. lost his seat. And I st- it's just like, if someone had said to me, the thing that will make you cry on election night will be Tom Brake losing. I just think, like, ultimately... It's oh, just, did you cry? Yeah, I just somehow... I He's such what, a good MP. I think that's the thing. It's just like, ultimately, like, when they went down to eight, right? And, yeah, I remember <laughs> a, a Liberal Democrat peer said to me the, the, the other day that they were like, yeah, the 2015 eight, one, like, they made mm. sense. They said they made sense in a parliamentary party of 60. They did not in an eight. Mm. And they said, and they said, genuinely, I almost think if you'd got, our, if you'd got like our enemies in the other parties together with a list and they were like, you can pick eight. And between them, they were like, and you could, they said, I can imagine them sitting there going, you know, we, we can't make them lose Nick Clegg as well as all of these. <laughs> said, but they said, you just ended up with, you know, eight MPs, you know, many of whom who didn't like each other. You know, Clegg was, you know, I mean, essentially it's one of the other MPs in the eight. You know, Clegg essentially like, you know, went into like a kind of traumatic blue screen of death because of, you know, his guilt at the loss of his colleagues. Then he only really came out of once like Brexit happened and he was yeah. like, okay, you know, we've this has got to be stopped. You know, Greg Mulholland had kind of made his career being like, you know, the awkward squad of the Liberal Democrats, which doesn't quite work when there are only eight of them. (laughs) And so many of them, because their majorities were so small, just felt they had to spend all of their time in their constituencies. And Tom Brake, I mean, the guy, as well as, you know, working his, his seat, you know, incredibly hard, 
you know, basically just you know, it was like the epitome of like a deeply tireless you know MP. You know, I always think like you know, particularly like because they're a party which we most only talk about in a kind of like it's a quiet week time to do wither the Lib Dems. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Lib Dems. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I had a conversation <laughs> with with one of their their many leaders since the COVID, <laughs> and they said to me, um, they said, you know, we talk about the column I'd written out, and they said, look, I think this is fair enough. They said, but they said I put it to you that you write three columns about the Lib Dems every year. They said to me, "You do one, you know, that you do one like, you know, at conf- at spring yeah. conference where you're like, oh yeah, the Lib Dems, they exist. They're <laughs> having a conference this week." They said, "You do one at our our autumn conference, and then at some point during the year, you do a why aren't the Liberal Democrats doing better?" And they're like, "Do you think maybe that maybe maybe the fact there are only two other columns is linked?" <laughs> and and yeah, one of the reasons why, if you are a smaller party, and this is one of the reasons why the Liberal Democrats did so much better than than Change UK, even mm. in, in this disastrous result for them and and, and don't worry uh, we, we will get on to, to all of, of the other parties as we go after I've done my you know my my eulogy to Tom Brake um, <laughs> is a willingness to say and do stupid things and do you remember that thing where they, they introduced them to their nine MPs you know after Sarah Olney had been elected mm. and she was typing and goes you know I need a break and he kind of like saunters in and like oh well, yeah he, like <laughs> did someone say break and she's like not that sort of break like Tom Brake is a man who has had a sufficiently small ego that he was willing to be the butt of a joke. He was about willing how to he cameo. Was sexually undesirable to get <laughs> his, his party to go viral. And yeah, I just think, yeah, because often, yeah, understandably, right, we talk a lot about politicians who we are critical of or politicians who are ambitious. And, and yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But actually, most, most of them are more like Tom Brake, right? They mm. work their constituents very hard. They put an awful lot on the line for their team. And, you know, he even increased his vote in, in this election, but the Tory vote went up by more. And, yeah, I just... I felt sad then. Yeah, really sad about it. A lot of the names coming out of the people who had lost their seats were actually quite upsetting for that reason because they're really hardworking, good MPs. And, and actually, probably we should talk about them more rather than just when they've lost their seats. Yeah. But people like Anna Turley, for example. Oh, God, MP. yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yeah, and just... Labour MP who lost her seat. Lost us, yeah. Um, And then I was particularly disappointed, and I won't bang on about it, about the the fact that Claire Wright, the independent candidate in Devon, didn't win because I was very taken with her when I went to go and do my reporting. Yeah. And it was a very optimistic campaign. Yeah, so we will talk about, yeah, all all three parties, including a second second go at the Liberal Democrats. But, yeah, obviously, the first thing is, yeah, the Conservatives have won. You can have an interesting cephalogical debate about whether or not it's a landslide. In my view, a landslide majority breaks 100, whether in gains or in, in, in seat numbers. But, you know, it's it's a big majority. Yeah. It's a majority it's where... It's a stonking majority. Yeah, it's a majority where, essentially, if there are late-night votes, it's going to be because the schedule is, uh, you know, is, is packed with legislation, not, <laughs> yeah. not because people not because are sitting there going, you know, yeah, it's on a knife edge. God, that's going to be a new world. Yeah, I was saying this to one of the 2017 Conservative MPs. I was just like, mate, you have no idea what you're... I was like, when have you ever had to vote on legislation on a Thursday evening, ever? <laughs> and he was just like, I think one of the Brexit votes. I was like, yeah, I was just like, literally, I was like, you people, like... I've, I'm finding <laughs> sorry. There are literally, there are two intakes, right? The 2015 and 2017 <laughs> intakes are, who are just full of MPs who... Because of the referendum, meaning that there was not very much legislation in that first bit of the Cameron Parliament, um, the fallout afterwards, the loss of a majority, have basically have never done like a late Wednesday sitting. Yeah, like there are so many people for whom this is just going to be like, you know, like... Oh, this is what being an MP is like. 
Because I think, yeah, one of the things I am fascinated by, and, you know, it obviously wouldn't be our election coverage if, if, if I didn't kvetch about the BBC and how I th- one of the things I think that they have you know, not lived up to the really important things and things they do do really well a lot of the time is how policy-free the analysis of both parties has been. And I kind of think that's partly, I think that's partly kind of learned behaviour. We've had a two-year period in which there has been very little policy because the government has no chance of passing any. How quickly can they unlearn that? Because now, you know, policy is going to come. I found that really interesting, actually, over the course of the election. And I think, you know, it's fair to say from what we've been saying on this podcast and also the reporting we've been doing, that the BBC didn't have a particularly great election. But on the flip side, I thought that the regional and local press had a really good election, both in terms of nailing Boris Johnson down, even just making him speak to them and on interviews, but also in terms of the policy. You know, he's been confronted about child poverty and transport and all of these things that he doesn't really have answers for by local reporters. And papers have been really uncompromising in in sort of telling their readers when he hasn't given them the time of day when he's gone to their parts of the country. And the editor of the Yorkshire Post wrote a very good letter to one of his readers about making sure she doesn't believe everything she she reads on online, on social media. And that, I, I just think I've, I've noticed that yeah, no. that's, that's really shone, particularly in a world where we very lazily say, oh, the death of the death of regional journalism, the death of local papers, without really thinking that they still have a function in that way, particularly on policy. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, the, the really important sort of policy coverage in this election and has actually, you know, obviously, you know, you've done a lot of it, but the stuff which has kind of cut through and actually made it into, mm. uh, you know, the, the kind of like the sort of like mainstream discussion has come, you know, overwhelmingly from local and regional titles. Yeah, I mean, uh, who was it who broke the story of the boy on the hospital? Yeah, it was, was the that Yorkshire the Yorkshire Post, Post? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so although the, the you know, the, the media stuff will one of the consequences of this big majority is we're going to have a lot of time to talk about the implications of this general election. Yeah. Um, but I think on the Conservative side, the, the big policy question is the policies don't add up. Now, I have obviously repeatedly said that I thought that Labour's count of how it could fund its stuff with tax rises only on people earning above 80k was optimistic. Mm. However, I understand how you can, if it turns out you have been optimistic on 80k, well, you just raise taxes on people earning under under 80k. Yeah. Whereas we now have a situation where a party has been elected with a majority of 80 saying it will keep income tax flat or falling, it will keep VAT flat falling, it will cut NR, the NI threshold and keep NI flat or falling, it will increase NHS spending by 32 billion, it will continue to reduce the debt as a proportion of GDP over the course of the parliament, and it will leave, by the end of next year, the single market and customs union. It's not just that those policies, like, literally at that point you go like, OK, so you're gonna ha- you can only keep one of those promises. Yeah, I don't understand where that money's coming from. And they can't answer that question. And actually, you're right. They haven't been asked that question enough over the course of the campaign. I had the joy of <laughs> asking Michael Fallon, you know, the former minister, these questions on radio last night when I was doing some commentary. And it was just, it was like we were talking, we were having two separate conversations because I was like, how are you going to fund these things? Without raising taxes and also with this hard Brexit down the line that we have, well, we have some idea, but we we have little idea of how devastating that's going to be for the economy. So I don't understand how you square those two things. And there's not been very much interrogation of that. 
And also, it's a weird double-edged sword because in terms of the actual spending that they're saying they want to do, it's not nearly as much as they were signalling that they wanted to do. So they were saying it's going to be the end of austerity, but it's basically business as usual in terms of how much funding they're giving to public services as well. Yeah, and the big thing, you know, as I know I'm sort of teaching Granny how to suck eggs on this one, but obviously the big, the big thing in terms of most people's day-to-day lived experience of austerity is the local government cuts. Yeah. And increasing NHS spending by £32 billion, right, it just like... It is just the most expensive way of just going, like, like the reason why you have more people, you know, ending up on, you know, coats instead of beds yeah. is because the health service can't discharge the elderly and people with acute social care needs. And it's just one of those things where... Funding the, the NHS that much is just such a sort of... It's just such an election pledge. Because everyone likes the NHS. It's easy. People understand what it is. Lots of people, when polled, don't know what social care actually is. So if you make a pledge that would actually be far more sensible policy to say that you'd fund social care properly, which Boris Johnson said that he would do in his first speech as Prime Minister on Downing Street, and there's no plan for it whatsoever. Um, oh, no, know, no. They'll have a commission. They're going to have a, I hate, a good, I hate hard commissions, think. and I hate it when they're like, there has to be cross-party consensus, because both those things just ring alarm bells in my head. Because it's a way of because saying... It's a way of pushing it it's a way of saying it will never happen it's basically going like we will do this provided the other party agrees not to use the words death tax about (laughs) our plan (laughs) exactly because it will inevitably involve something which looks like a death tax I know I mean for all of Theresa May's flaws at least she tried to find some kind of solution to the social care crisis well I do think one of the interesting things about right these two conservative campaigns and again we will you know we'll have you know the Bez wave we will have you know the fruits of you know the Liberal Democrats always do a post-mortem we'll talk about them a bit later on in podcast yeah we'll, we'll have all of that so we'll discuss that in very but i think one of the interesting differences between the 2017 conservative campaign and the 2019 conservative campaign is nick timothy was fundamentally a policy guy who had delusions of being a strategy guy and the mm-hmm. the, the policies which were i mean I'm, yeah I, the grammar schools on which basically went you know like oh there have been 20 years of successfully increasing school standards why don't we junk that in favor of nick timothy's reckons but it was a policy <laughs> that, that existed and was tangible mm. whereas dominic cummings is a strategy guy and the policy, you know, for all like he'll, you know, do these self-indulgent blogs about like, oh, you know, I am going to be the, you know, whenever you actually say to him, okay, Dom, you can, you can, you can do like a well thought through policy or you can win some votes. He's like, oh, let, let me hear about the votes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fascinating thing is, is that there are lots of reasons Theresa May had to go for an election in 2017. But one was she inherited a bunch of, of prop policy pledges which could not be reconciled with the real world. Now, you can't exit from a parliament where you have a majority of 80, right? What's your excuse? You can't be like, by the way, guys, we've realised that we made a bunch of... But something is going to have to give. Is it going to be a softer Brexit? Is it going to be the spending pledges? Is it going to be... I mean, or is it going to be like turning around and going, oh, we've we've spent loads and loads of money on the NHS, but it's still in... You know, the NHS, not only is the NHS in winter conditions because it's winter, the NHS has never left the winter conditions of, yeah, yeah. Of, of, la- of the last winter. It reminds me a bit of 2015 when they tied their hands in a similar way to that yeah. manifesto that had really drastic uh, cuts in it. Yeah. And they kind of thought maybe we'll be in coalition again and the Lib Dems can temper it, but then they had to deliver on that stuff. And, and what... What did it result in? A really drastic, I think, degradation of the social and economic fabric of this country. So yeah, and that's th- sort of what's coming, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think you can I think you can draw an absolute line between the incredibly asymmetric attempt to, you know, take twelve and a half billion pounds out of the welfare budget. Mm. I think they what well, in the end successfully took three yeah. or you know, without touching pensioners. Yeah. Essentially I think you can draw a direct line between those commitments in the twenty fifteen election. The destruction of Cameron's popularity 
and therefore Brexit, mm-hmm. and of course with mm-hmm. it the the unmaking of the coalition for the economic liberalism of, of the Conservative Party in its previous yeah. state. And similarly, something will have to give. Of course, the person who will decide will be Boris Johnson, who, you know, has, you know, written himself into the electoral history books and into a hegemonic position within the Tory party. And we'll wait and see what he does with that position over the coming weeks, months, years and decade. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Although in reality, to be honest, this week You Ask Us is an entirely performative device <laughs> to talk about the, the the major parties and how they've they've done yeah. uh, in the election by basically going... And yeah, we will we will next next week, I've sent Patrick and Alva home to sleep. We will do a kind of big thing about, you know, Northern Ireland, Scotland, yeah. and, you know, the, looking forward to the, to, you know, be a year, Mark Drakeford's first year in office. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about, you know, the, these islands and where they go. So we're talking about the three UK-wide parties. So basically the question is, like, the Liberal Democrats, how did that happen? Yeah. So I'm sure our listeners are informed of what happened, but uh, Jo Swinson losing her seat, them losing their leader. Um, them ending up with... Ending up with, with fewer, fewer seats. seats. Um, and their worst election. I mean, this thing, the 2017 election was their worst in terms of vote in their history, coming after their worst in their history in terms of, in their modern history, in terms of seats. They doubled their vote. They ended up with one fewer MP. They lost their leader. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I'm sure that you had the same thing, but when we were out on the campaign trail and also just generally reporting on the election, it was pretty clear pretty quickly that the Lib Dems' confidence at the start of the campaign, indeed their confidence to actually try and bring about the election in the first place, was quickly seemed to be misguided. And I couldn't really tell why at first. It wasn't so much... I think a lot of people say that Joe Swinson was sort of some kind of disaster and extremely unpopular, but it was almost like people didn't really mention her that much, which I suppose is a problem for a leader in itself. But I got the impression that it was more the policy that they were running on. But I know you always say not many people actually know what the Lib Dems Brexit policy was. But I, I, I had it mentioned did, did quite often. Like it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people like to say they're neither liberal nor democrats, which <laughs> is actually kind of. <laughs> if you look at the manifesto, you can make that argument. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where so the revoke policy. Like the weird thing is, right? Even now in the polls, it's. Yeah, like people claim it's popular, but I think the th- yeah, yeah, like yeah, you you are I don't no, get you, where that you, comes from. Well, so you ask people, like you know, in in and yeah, like in all of the polls, so including opinion, which got the result basically right. Yeah, uh, yeah, the person who many people oh, and they're an outlier. Well, they weren't an outlier; they were right. Yeah, um, but um, so 
in all of the polls, people go, oh, yeah, I like the idea of revoking Article 50. But I kind of think that the problem is, is that, like, whenever I write about the Brexit trade-offs and, you know, what, what you know, the various options mean, you know, the, the, particularly in terms of the things that... Because we have this weird situation where there, there are loads of, like, perfectly achievable and, and successful Brexit end states. It's just that they don't line up with the, any of the political party's other aims. Mm. So when you have this thing where you're just like, well, you know, you could have this thing and this would allow you to have an economically liberal Brexit, but that would mean you'd have to still have free... After I, I'm just like, do you know what, just revoke, right? <laughs> no, but I don't actually think that just revoking wouldn't, you know, haunt our <laughs> democracy for decades. <laughs> and then, you know, this idea also that you'd get a Remain bonus from getting 35% of the vote revoking, the Tory party would, of course, re configure itself into a, you know, you know, no deal on day one of a government. <laughs> yeah. This idea that businesses would go, ah, yes, I will invest in the UK. <laughs> and you'd have, you know, however many billions it was to, to invest in other things, I just think was, was crazy. But I think it was one of those things where I can see how it was popular in the abstract, but it also was overlaid on the kind of cross-party Remain campaign failure to, to yeah. nail the argument that, that Brexit will not be done. Yeah. Which, I mean, is the big lie of this election. Yeah, one of the many stress fractures under the Conservative policy offer. I also, I don't know what your experience was, but, you know, Joe Swinton obviously became unpopular during this campaign. Yeah, I think obviously lots of it was sexist. I think mm. just as it is slightly aggrieving from a minority perspective that Sajid Javid got very little plaudit for basically having a very sort of, admittedly, he's kind of like, you know, you turn on all of it now in the cabinet, but, you know, having a very frank, no, look, this party does have problems with, with how it responds to ethnic minorities. Yeah, well, when he was running when for he was leadership. running for leader yeah. yeah when you know whether it's Rishi Sunak or James Cleverly but when the Conservatives and I think it's inevitable that they will have an ethnic minority leader within the next uh, decade I just can't see how they won't yeah that won't be the thing they, they go the direction they go in after Boris Johnson whether it's Rishi Sunak or James Cleverly or you know or someone else oh or God help us pretty Patel oh God Oh, I feel sick. Anyway, um, but yeah, they will all run on a, a platform of, I came here with nothing. In some cases, that will be a bit of a reach. <laughs> uh, and, you know, um, or my parents came here with nothing. And thanks to this party with its commitment to opportunity, fairness and meritocracy. Yeah. And you actually see that with Obama, right? Actually, mostly when ethnic minorities take power in a, they spend a lot of time reassuring majorities. And yeah. although I think I gained a lot of yeah, respect for Sadie Javid for being quite frank, mm. uh, if someone had asked me to advise you how and how to become the first ethnic minority to lead the Conservative Party, I would not say yeah. it's time for a frank conversation about race <laughs> on trade. You just have to sound and, grateful to the yeah. white people who let you into their country. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah, I would like... I actually, you know, I would do what... Yeah, actually, Sadiq Khan did very skillfully in that, that mail interview after he got the mayoral nomination of going, you know, I was so thrilled to meet the Queen, right? Which mm. I was like, is essentially a, like, you know, thank you... Killer thank line. You, yeah, <laughs> thank you, majorities, for, for letting me come and, you know, and, and bow and scrape a bit. But you know, that is sort of what you've got to do. And yeah. I kind of think that... I do think there's a similar dynamic in the... Do I think some of the way people reacted to Joe Swinson was sexism? Yeah. However, unfortunately, as with the... I loved meeting the Queen. You do sort of have to have a plan yeah, for that. I think so. Right. I think that's right. I mean, it's sad, but it's true. And and she didn't. And also, I think part of the problem for her... So lots of people say that she's associated with the coalition. I think on the doorstep, that doesn't translate that much for your for your casual voter yeah. um, who doesn't remember that Joe Swinson was business secretary and, or business minister in the coalition. But I think the fact that all of in all of those televised debates and the interviews that she did, that she was sort of hammered on that topic so often, 
even if you're not really engaging the, with the argument, you can see that she's trying to avoid questions and sort of equivocate. And perhaps that meant that she came across as indecisive because that was her big problem. That was the big fault line in all the interviews. So it's not so much that people think it in their heads, but they see this interview that suggests that she comes across as incompetent or yeah, I think shifty. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I think shifty is the right word. And I think, you know, ultimately one of the kind of sort of subtext arguments in the last Liberal Democrat leadership election was Ed Davey was broadly running on a platform of, I think that we should just talk about the fact that private eye said I was wasting lots of money on renewables and now, you know, look what's happened to British Wind. Mm. You know, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been in coalition. Are there things we wish the Tories hadn't done? Yeah, but coalition was, the, you know, you don't get the wind power without us being there. Yeah. And, you know, his argument was you have to do that because people aren't going to forget the coalition and if you're the third party, you are effectively running on the we will do a coalition again. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the Swinton argument, which obviously was the one which found favour with the majority of members, was like, well, look, you have to, like, own the failures, in her phrase. And I just think the problem is is that owning the failures means you end up in this kind of sort of, like, shifty thing, partly because actually, like, although I think the Ed Davey argument is great in theory, they, they also made, just from a policy trade-off perspective, a lot of terrible decisions. Mm. Like the £4 billion pounds for the for the incomes tax threshold raise. I mean, the amount of good they could have done on their domestic priorities and not wasting it on a, a deeply inefficient and regressive tax cut. Yeah. Um, that has only escalated since then. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Like, it's just like, yeah, yeah well their done. A legacy. Yeah, it's just like, well done, guys. Yeah, great, great work. But I do think, although those were real problems, you know, I, and this is, you know, in the spirit that, you know, one of the, you know, I will obviously publish uh, my yearly post-mortem mm. uh, late next week, but one of the kind of things I, I've already sort of concluded from sort of the first sort of like private, draft because I try and make it sort of slightly less long and self-indulgent when it arrives on the website is um to try and, and, and articulate my my thinking even if it's just throat clearing more just so I have a record of it and I, but I just kind of feel like broadly actually we've now had a lot of stress testing whether it's Ed Miliband in, Ed Miliband in 2015 Tim Farron in 2017 Joe Swinson in, in 2019 just because their activists on Twitter love rowing with each other, actually, the voters broadly think there's a, a lever-marked Tory and a lever-marked not-Tory. Yeah. The Liberal Democrats' real leader at this election was Jeremy Corbyn, and their real leader, in the mind of most voters, at the next election will be whoever the new Labour leader is. And I think Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity, even though he ended this election deeply unpopular but less unpopular than Joe Swinson, mm. and I, if you actually look at Lib Dem seat gains, the, re- the relationship between Lib Dems doing well and the Labour leader's approval rating is much stronger than the relationship between the Lib Dems doing well and the Liberal Democrats. That's so interesting. Is that because you think that you're going to help a Labour, Liberal Democrat sort of government? Yeah, I don't even so much think that people... Act, so I think some people actively vote Liberal Democrat because they want a Labour, Liberal, Demo, Liberal Democrat. Yeah. We know that's the preferred option of most Liberal Democrat voters. But I also think that among a key group of people particularly under first past the post right so you look at like the places they came very close in but failed to win with the exception of 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 wimbledon and a uh, uh, of golders green where mm. it looks like either labor was incompetent or actively maliciously trying to prevent uh, luciana bercia from from winning with the exception of those seats everywhere the the lib dems came close they had squeezed the Labour vote out of existence. Mm. They are only going to win Isha and Walter and Winchester by getting some of those Tories to yeah. vote for them. And for and even though they don't need very many, they need those people not necessarily to want a Labour government, 
but not to actively fear it. My view is that while yeah, they had many problems, for them actually, you know, and we'll, again, we'll have a long time to discuss the left-right position of the Labour Party, the Brexit position of the Labour Party, and, and how it can, can win elections. But I kind of think wherever the electoral sweet spot for Labour, the difficulty for the Lib Dems is I think it's probably a li- the Labour Party has to be yeah, the position where the Labour Party is electable itself is probably still not electable enough from a Lib Dem perspective. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, the Labour leader is the Lib Dem leader in the minds of, of I think, many, many swing voters. So we've saved the best till last? The last till last. The la- yeah. Um, so this is probably going to surprise absolutely no one listening to this podcast. I mean, if it is, I'm sorry, turn, turn the podcast off now. So the election did not go well for the Labour Party. No, it was catastrophic. It was a far bigger... I mean, I think both of us and our colleagues who have been reporting on this thought that the Conservatives were going to win by quite a margin. Yeah. But I, I think this probably did surprise us all the extent of it. Yeah, I think... If that's fair to say. Yeah, no, I think it's... Well, I think... Actually, I think the one, the one person who, you know, we, um, we were talking about it on the... Yeah, so because Patrick went, well, look, I just think it will either be a hung parliament because this won't have worked, and yeah, we'll have somehow missed something in the you know our conversations, or they'll absolutely marmalise uh, yeah. who was the lay party. But I think yeah, all of the rest, yeah, everywhere we went, our impression was yeah, essentially the people who felt they could not vote Conservative at the last election and therefore voted Liberal Democrat had come back to the, the Conservative Party mostly not out of any affection for Boris Johnson, but out of fatigue with Brexit and fear mm. uh, of Corbyn. And on the Labour side, people who felt they could not vote for Jeremy Corbyn had not had their minds changed. Yeah. And they had been joined by, you know, by many more people. By many people who must have voted for him last time. Yeah. yeah. And I think this thing is that, you know, obviously some of the fact that the Green vote and the Remain and the Lib Dem vote was, was up basically, you know, everywhere around the country is, is about, you know... Greta Thunberg and the fact that it's actually terrifyingly warm for this port. Yeah, this is yeah. the allegedly bleak midwinter. Yeah, it's it's about you know the, the general increase in salience for environmental solutions. But yeah. for people for whom they felt that this election presented them with an irreconcilable and deeply angering choice between the moral imperative of getting the Tories out and the moral imperative that the view of eighty six percent of British Jews than the Labour leader was an anti-Semite, had to count for something, right? Mm. The people who felt caught between those moral imperatives but did not want to signal a breach with the broader economic policies, the Greens were a natural vote of of last resort. The Greens could have had the same manifesto, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that's the thing. Is I just think, you know, and obviously, you know, my social circle is, is, is particularly primed for that that kind of person. But, you know, for people who really wanted to go like, I just want you to fix this one thing, they felt that the Greens were the, the way of, of not explicitly signalling that, but, you know, you're obviously not saying if you vote Green, I want a different economic policy. Yeah. And actually, if the Green issue was clearly not about policy, right, because on a policy perspective, you know, basically every NGO, you know, Friends of the Earth actually rated Labour as, as higher than mm. the, the Greens. But, yeah, they, they put those big, th- the three sort of parties with, with serious environmental agendas, you know, Labour, Greens and Liberal Democrats, very close together when every, uh, and they had actually sort of, very credible policies in that area. All of that added together, I think we all kind of felt, well, they're not going to do... Yeah, yeah, Labour will do worse. The Tories will, even if they only do as well as last time, that still means better. Yeah, but yeah. I, yeah, I think, yeah, the consensus figure well, yeah, among us was, yeah, kind of 20 to 30 rather yeah, than... Yeah, rather a, than... 
Yeah, and no. some of the places that they've lost, I just don't think... It's difficult. It's difficult to imagine Labour losing some of the places that they've lost, even if you know logically in your head what direction the election was going in. Yeah, because, um, I mean, there's basically... there's To me, there's the ones like, say, you know, Darlington, which is like a classic, like, oh, has it been a bad win. night for Labour? Well, yeah. they've lost Darlington, right? Yeah, like, ironically, of course, actually, the position that Putney, the only Labour gain, used to, used to occupy... <laughs> um, on the conservative side of I mean. yeah. it. Um, then there are the ones like Wrexham where you're like, okay, well, yeah, that's been trending. Yeah, it kind of makes makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, then there are the ones where you just look at them and you're just like, yeah, even the ones where it's just like, well, yeah, like, obviously, like, on that swing, Vernon Coker was going to lose Gedling. Yeah. But I was just like, yeah. Yeah. It's just, and yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm not saying it is an election result which makes it impossible for Labour to come back, but in one term but it is it is a huge mountain to climb yeah yeah i mean and it all depends because it's difficult to know i think lots of people have come out with a great deal of certainty for the reason why it happened but um it's difficult to know the reason but it depends a lot on the reason why it happened what happens next time because boris johnson i think said in his speech something about people lending their votes to the conservatives for brexit if that's the case then the conservatives probably have more of a challenge on their hands because they've got to try and keep these people who don't naturally vote conservative and probably won't see any benefit in the next five years probably will see a worsening of of their day-to-day lives then that will be more of a challenge for the tories than labor but i think maybe you know what other people are saying in the sort of blame game about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and the direction of the party and its inability to keep together this really fragmented and fragile and delicate and impossible to reconcile coalition of voters that it that it's got that it's been trying to hold together since Ed Miliband and before the fact that it hasn't resolved that is one of the reasons why probably exacerbated by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership why it lost so catastrophically this time which is I, impossible to come back from in five years' time, I think. I mean, so my kind of feeling is, right, essentially, there's Labour, Labour is a political party where there's the underlying disease of how do you hold this coalition together? The fact that the most misunderstood and overcovered statement of this election, I thought, was John Curtis saying in quite a casual way, you know, one of my colleagues went to the briefing and, and kindly sort of gave me the Crawley after, mm-hmm. you know, of course Labour's chance of getting a majority is less than zero. That's been true since the Scottish referendum and what happened there. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, that, that kind of the underlying disease of you can't win a majority, you have to hold together this weird and slightly unwieldy set of, like, you know, people, you know, like both baked in Labour heartlands have voted Labour, you know, for centuries are going in very different directions. That's the underlying disease. Yeah. And then, essentially, Corbyn's unpopularity was like the equivalent of a a treatment which just lowers your immune system. Yeah. And then the need to form a Brexit position, it felt to me at least, was almost like, you know, once Remainers uh, needed to be reassured, because although clearly being a party against Brexit was disastrous for Labour... The hypothetical, yeah, it's one of those things where that doesn't mean the hypothetical of like turning around to Remainers and going, do you know what we love? Brexit would not have had a concomitant problem at the other end of the coalition. Yeah. Um, But like you said in your piece, it's really difficult to play that out in your mind because if they just kept the policy they had last time round, would Remainers, who they were so worried were going to go over to the Lib Dems, have forgiven them because of that it's the Tories or Labour thing that people get in their heads at general elections? Yeah, and I think. That's I just hate thinking about that because they could have just kept that policy and maybe it would have been fine. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I think 
yeah, I, I think he's saying, I think ultimately, you know, yeah, we, we will have, you know, the best data and a whole lot. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard to know. It, it, it is hard to know. And it, you do get into kind of things like, yeah, because in some ways I kind of think would the, the coverage, particularly on, you know, our main broadcaster of Johnson's Brexit deal have been better if they had been comparing, you know, one Brexit deal with another. Mm. I mean, it could hardly have been worse, right? Yeah, like ultimately, the, the, the zero scrutiny of what Boris Johnson's Brexit promises meant for his economic policies... Yeah, it was already at an absolute low. Would it have been a boost for the Liberal Democrats? I, I do think, yeah, it was, I did think, I wrote at the time, I thought it was a mistake for Labour to change Brexit policies before the Tories had changed their leader. Because the Tories picked a, you know, I don't think anyone, any of us who went around the country detected, yeah, it was not an election about enthusiasm for Boris Johnson. No. It was about wanting Brexit over and, you know, fear of of the Labour Party. Yeah. Uh, those were the two... Uh, yeah, people weren't leaping out of their houses to go and vote for Boris Johnson. And in an odd way, that is, at the end of a pretty bleak 48 <laughs> hours and a podcast, and I doubt that, you know, listeners are going to be going onto iTunes going, yeah, well, listen to this if you want to feel a song in your heart. <laughs> um, the, the major source of optimism, I think, is that the Conservatives' majority is a function of it's a function of a negative mm. conservative voters do not regard Boris Johnson's deceptions as a deal breaker in the way that many labor voters you know traditional labor voters i one i really hate the term the way that like traditional is like only people in a small town you know i'm sorry you know, like people in you know inner city seats like mine you know who've like voted labor all of their lives you have you know, who are themselves Jewish, have Jewish friends, are traditional Labour voters. Yeah. That revulsion, I, actually, I think that revulsion is more legitimate than going, oh, I'm, I'm angry about some migration I never see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, and actually traditional is one of those words that's been used for a very specific type of person, i.e. white. Yeah. So it's probably like long-time Labour voters is probably, yeah. says, says more about more people. But yeah, that's another story about the kind of language that's used. Yeah, but I think it is the... The kind of light at the end of the tunnel is the incoherence of the promises and the, the, it's a negative mandate, almost. Hmm. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anoush Shikelian. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you for all of your lovely emails and tweets. There will be one more podcast before the new year in which we talk about political prospects for these islands but if you know you don't listen to it because you're you know driving home for christmas or whatever have a very lovely holiday and we'll see you in the new year